We'll be seated, if you will, and open your Bibles to John chapter 17. And we continue our study into this incredible passage of Scripture. This is known as the High Priestly Prayer. It's also been called by many, many commentators the Real Lord's Prayer. And this is our fourth session in this single chapter. And today we will finish up the second section in this chapter. We've already looked at how Jesus has prayed concerning Himself that He would be glorified through the cross, that His death on the cross would bring the subsequent resurrection which would bring glory to the Father. The glory is accomplished primarily through Jesus completing the Father's eternal plan of redemption which was established before the foundation of the world, before you and I ever were, Before Jesus ever came, before anything was ever created, God had already established that this plan of redemption would take place through His one and only Son. And so in this section that we're looking at today, where Jesus transitions from praying concerning Himself, and He begins to pray concerning these 11 men who had followed Him so faithfully from the very beginning of His ministry, He prays specifically for them. Now, although He does pray specifically for them, it can still be generally applied to all believers. There's unique circumstances in that he's praying for these men because he's about to leave them. They have not known life apart from him for three and a half years. And not only is he preparing them for their apostolic ministry, he's preparing them for his imminent departure. So the basis of the prayer that Jesus is praying on behalf of these 11 men is based upon the fact that God has ownership of them as He has called them to Himself from eternity past to become His children, and they would do so through the ministry of Jesus. So in John 17.6, John affirms that these men, Jesus affirms that these men were given to Him by the Father, and He affirms that they have remained faithful to the revelation that Jesus has provided to them through the entirety of of his earthly ministry. In verses 7 and 8, he affirms that everything the Father has given to Jesus to give to them, his teaching, his self-revelation, they have received and they have believed and they are sure beyond any shadow of a doubt that he was sent to them by the Father. In verses 9 through 11, Jesus brings his request on behalf of these men because of their belief in him and because he's about to leave them as he departs back to his previous place of glory. So in our outline that we looked at last week, Roman numeral 1, Jesus prays for His disciples. And what He prays specifically, there's two things, we'll look at the second one today, is that He prays for their spiritual protection. When Jesus says to keep them in your name, He is asking that the Father would preserve their faithful, loyal devotion to Him. They had not wavered in their commitment to Him. There was a lot that they didn't understand. There was a lot that they didn't perfectly execute. But they remained faithful to Jesus through the entire time that they followed Him. He says, keep them in your name, the name which you have given Me. And so Jesus has revealed to these men the character and the nature of God, the Father, through His earthly ministry. So, this spiritual protection is expressed in letter A, unity. Just as Jesus and the Father are one, so are the disciples 
to function together as one. We talked about this last week, and there is an invisible unity that exists between the entirety of the family of God. You have been joined together in oneness with every believer, whether they're sitting in a seat next to you, or they're over in India, or down in South America, or in some other part of the world. There is this invisible unity that exists between the children of God based upon our salvation. We have been unified with Christ, and it is in that union that all of God's children are one together. But Jesus isn't praying about the unity that exists in our salvation. He's praying not for the invisible unity, but for the visible unity that is the rightful expectation of not only these men, but as we'll look at next time, of all who would believe through their word. So Jesus is praying for the visible unity that God has created. This unity is to exist within the family of God. And that is something that Jesus is praying that the Father would protect them in. We talked at length about how difficult unity can be to maintain within the family of God because we are so different. And our differences have the potential to divide us. Something as simple as the college football team you root for has the capacity to divide you from another believer in Christ. Now you kind of chuckle at that. But we know, my wife and I, we know people, one who roots for Alabama and one who roots for Auburn, and they're both professing Christians and they don't like each other and they want nothing to do with each other. So our differences are going to divide us and Jesus in His Omniscience, although it's subordinate to the Father, prays that this unity that God has created, which is invisible to us, would be expressed in unity as we bind ourselves together. So there's to be unity produced by the Holy Spirit through our salvation. It is to be protected and maintained by the disciples. What God has created, they and we are called to protect. Unity produces a common love for the Lord. It produces a common commitment to His Word. It produces a common affection for God's people. It produces a common separation from all that is ungodly and worldly. This unity that is to, to take place between the family of God produces a powerful and a viable gospel message. The kind of unity that Jesus prays for is the kind of unity that He has provided for them during His earthly ministry. Now, if you were here last week, and this sounds real familiar, it's because this is exactly what I said last week. It's review. It's to get you ready for what you're about to hear. So letter A, was it was expressed in unity. Letter B, it was demonstrated by joy. This is the third time that Jesus has addressed the subject of joy in the farewell discourse and in this prayer. And this is something that is also in need of protection. Have you ever met a joyless Christian? Have you ever had periods in your life where you found it incredibly difficult to find any joy in your life because of how difficult life was? Well, our joy is something that needs to be protected. So in the context of the spiritual protection that Jesus is praying for, it is clear that our joy is a byproduct of what the Holy Spirit produces in us as a part of our union with Him and with our spiritual family. 
So a big part of our spiritual battle is maintaining joy in our union with Christ regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Our joy is not to be dependent upon what life has to offer us. Our joy is to be rooted in our salvation and our union with Him. So joy is an inner gladness. It is a deep-seated pleasure that is ours because of Christ. And this brings us to our passage of Scripture today. And this morning we're going to look at verses 14 through 19. Jesus continues this prayer and says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus prayed for the spiritual protection of His disciples, expressed in unity, demonstrated by joy, and it is related to truth. Jesus is praying for our protection in the truth. Verse 14a, I have given them your word. So when Jesus says He has given them your word, He's referring not just to the spoken word, but to the entire content of divine revelation that has emanated from the life and the ministry of the Son as He has spoken what the Father has told Him to speak, as He has done what the Father has told Him to do, as He has gone where the Father has directed Him to go. So this is really a restatement of what Jesus prayed earlier in verse 8. He says, For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So just as Jesus prayed for the preservation of their spiritual commitment, this loyal, faithful devotion, He's also praying for their protection in the truth. Everything that Jesus said and did was directed by the Father, and it revealed to them the character and the nature of the Father. If you were to try to articulate as many of the attributes of God that you could recite, what we would be able to say as we observe the life and the ministry of Jesus is that's exactly what that means. This is what Jesus has done, is He has revealed to these men and to the world the divine nature and the divine character of the Father. He has revealed His absolute truths, His righteous standards, His justice, His righteous judgment, His mercy, His grace, His love, all that He is and all that man is not, and every bit of the need that man has for salvation has been revealed through the life and the ministry of Jesus. As He has done that, the disciples have received it and they are firmly committed to it. I have given them Your Word. Now in contrast to the disciples' glad and joyful reception of the Word of the Father expressed through the life and the ministry of the Son is the reaction of the world to that exact same truth. Jesus wasn't one way with the disciples and another way in the public arena. 
Everything that Jesus revealed to the disciples, He revealed the exact same thing to the world around them. And we are either going to accept it and commit to it, or we are going to reject it and rebel against it. Those are the only two options. And so there is here a contrast between the reaction of the disciples and the reaction of the world. The world has rejected this self-revelation of Christ. If you remember all the way back in the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the prologue, we read these words in John 1.10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. They did not have a relationship with Him, not because He was hidden or secretive or because He was masking the reality of who He was. It's simply they did not know Him because they rejected Him. During His ministry, as He constantly battled with the religious leaders, we have, in a sense, a summarization in John 5.38. You do not have His Word, the Father's Word, abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He the Father sent. You see, what Jesus is saying is that if you don't believe in Me, then you don't believe in the Father who sent Me. You can't believe in the absolute truth of the Father and reject the divine revelation that has emanated through my life and through my ministry. There is an inseparable link between the Father and the Son and the Son's revelation of the Father to the world. We either accept it or we reject it. The world has rejected this revelation and Jesus is praying that these disciples would be protected in this truth that they have received and they have committed themselves to. Folks, if you're not aware of this, there is a battle raging in our world today and most specifically in the culture that we live in today about what is absolute truth. Is there such a thing as eternal truth? And depending upon the number of people that you ask, you might find exactly that many perspectives on what is and isn't truth. So depending upon your own religious expression, you will have something in your life that defines what is truth for you. For the Muslim, they have the Quran and they have the Prophet Muhammad. For the Mormon, they have the Book of Mormon and they have the alleged Prophet Joseph Smith. The Catholic Church has the Roman Catholic Church as its authority and the Pope as its representation of Christ and the quote-unquote sacred traditions of the church which for them make up what is and isn't truth. In the unreligious world that we live in today, there are any number of philosophies and and worldviews that will become to them their truth. So what is it that is going to guide people today into what is or isn't truth? There's a pretty numerous example of options that we could even begin to popcorn out to one another. This could be truth. That could be truth. I've heard that as truth. They reject that as truth. And so there is, for every individual, something that is going to become to them their truth. But for these 11 men, and for all who would believe through their Word, and for evangelical Christians, we have the Bible, we have the completed revelation of God to man, which perfectly expresses through the life and the ministry of Jesus who He is, what He's like, and how we can come to know Him. 
we will either be completely committed to this as our truth, or we will not. There are many, many Christians in our world today that have straddled the fence of a partial commitment to this revelation of truth, seeking to absorb as much that the world has to offer without providing the appearance of compromise. You see, this is why there can be great division within the professing body of Christ. Because there isn't a common commitment to the Lord. There isn't a common commitment to His Word. There isn't a common commitment to separate ourselves from all that is ungodly and all that is worldly. But if you and I have a common commitment to submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word, there ought to be with increasing accuracy, a common commitment to the absolute truth that has been revealed to us through the holy and errant, eternal, infallible Word of God. For these disciples, and the expectation of all true disciples, there is an absolute, unwavering commitment to this revelation of truth. As a result of this reality, Jesus says in 14b, I missed that verse, I'm sorry, uh, these are coming. I'm sorry, I'm beginning to lie. So as a result, 14b, and the world has hated them. Because of their commitment to the Father, this revelation of divine truth through Jesus, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This is what Jesus is saying to them, excuse me, saying in this prayer, and this is a restatement of what Jesus told the disciples in his farewell disciple, excuse me, the farewell discourse beginning in John 15.8. They had a need to love one another as Christ loved them because the world was going to hate them. The world was going to hate them because they no longer belong to the world, its ways, its philosophies, and its subjective understanding of what is and isn't truth. Through their union with Christ, Jesus has separated them from the world and He has brought them into the family of God. Colossians 1.13 For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We no longer belong to the ways of the world. Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can be very proud of and very boastful in the reality that you and I are Americans, but we are first and foremost to consider ourselves as citizens of heaven, belonging to Him, and secondarily, we are Americans, and we are to see ourselves as foreigners who are traveling through this land on a temporary journey awaiting our return to glory. So this is true for us as well. We don't belong to the world. We have been rescued from it and are called to reject its fickle notion of truth and replace it with the absolute truth that has been revealed to us through His Word. So for this reason, the world is going to hate us as well because we do not belong to the world. We have been separated from the world. And through a holy and righteous life, we will expose the sin that exists within the world and nobody likes to have that done. So letter C, there's protection for this and then letter D, this prayer for protection is in the presence of a real battle. 
Jesus says in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Spiritual battle is a real everyday part of the Christian life. And there is a very real enemy who seeks to do battle with us each and every day. I want to tell you, if you don't remind yourself of that truth, you will find yourself questioning who God is and what God has said and what am I supposed to do. You will find increasing amounts of animosity between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. You will find all kinds of difficulty in your relationships. And when it dawns on us that we are simply being used as pawns in a spiritual battle, there ought to be this awakening in our lives that says, oh my goodness, I forgot, I am in a spiritual battle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? What is our struggle against? It's against the principles. It's against the powers. It's against the darkness that is in this world. It's against all of that invisible stuff that we cannot see. And the actual participants are the people that we can see. You see, your brother is not your enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your pastor is not your enemy. It's a spiritual battle. And we have to remind ourselves that there is a battle that is being waged around us that is very, very real. And we have to remind ourselves that this battle rages over our spiritual commitment, our unity within the family of God, our joy and our union with Christ, and our commitment to the absolute truth of His world. Of His Word. Jesus says, do not take them out of the world. Have you ever wondered how monasteries came about? Monasteries came about because there were people who wanted to be separated from the world so they would maintain a holy life, a righteous life, a life that has been removed as much as possible from the presence of sin. Well, you know the problem with that, don't you? is that the presence of sin is everywhere. When you are saved, you have a new spirit, but your old mind has not been redeemed. The desires of your flesh have not been redeemed. What you think and how you think has not been redeemed. This is why we're called to crucify ourselves daily so that what is positionally true of us is more practically true of us in the kind of lives that we live. There's no need for us to, to retreat away from the world or to shrink back from the world or remove ourselves from the world. And the reason for that is found at the very, very last verse in the farewell discourse in John 16.33. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in Me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage I have overcome the world. Now, do you believe that you and I have the ability to overcome the world because of our union with Christ? Well, gee, I don't know. That's a pretty big ask. That's a pretty tough task to take on. Well, you're right, it is. But thanks to God that He has given to us the Holy Spirit to live within us, to enable us and empower us to be able to overcome the world because of our union with Him. Just as He has overcome the world, 
We can overcome the world through Him. We are in the world as ambassadors to Christ, called to live out and share the message of good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But since our lives are lived in the reality of a spiritual battle, this is a very, very difficult task for us to execute as well as we would like. But we're not alone in this. We have to remind ourselves, and this is what Jesus explained to them all throughout the farewell discourse. All that you're going to be asked to do, all that you're going to need in order to do these things, is going to be accomplished through the Helper, the Paraclete, the One that the Father is going to send to you, who will indwell you and guide you and empower you and remind you of all truth, of everything that I have said to you. And it is this helper that's going to give to you the ability to bear fruit in this world, to ask whatever you wish in His name, knowing that He will grant it to you as long as you stay closely connected to the vine. Jesus prayed that the Father would protect them from the power of and the influence of the evil one not to be removed from the world. Well, the evil one is none other than God's archenemy, Satan himself, whose desire is to deceive us, to distract us, and to discourage us in our walk with God. He desires to distract us, to discourage us, and to deceive us in our walk with God. If our enemy can do that, then our lives are not going to be about the plans and the purposes that God has for us. We will not be pursuing unity. We will not experience the joy that God has provided. We will potentially waver in our commitment to the truth. And as we live our lives in this sin-dominated world, we will look less and less like Christ if the enemy is having his way with us instead of us becoming overcomers as Jesus has enabled us to do. Verse 16, Jesus goes on to say, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And just as Jesus was not of the world, we are to be separated just as He was. James 4.4, James says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And as you read that verse, as I see these words, I think of the Christian who is straddling the fence between a commitment to the world and a commitment to the Father. And what what the Bible says is that this desire to be friends with the world is not nothing other than hostility to the Father Himself. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So Jesus is praying for the spiritual preservation of the disciples expressed in unity, demonstrated by joy, related to the truth, as we are living out our lives in a very real battle in this world. Now the second thing, that Jesus prays for in Roman numeral 2 here, is He prays for their sanctification. He says in verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to set apart or to be separated. 
the word holy is a derivative of this same root word of separate. When you are to be holy as He is holy, it means that we are to be separate from the world and the things of the world and the ways of the world and the sin of the world just as He is. And so this word sanctify means that we are to be set apart just as Jesus was set apart. So for you and I, there are three phases of sanctification. This is a helpful reminder as we think about this. Number one, there is positional sanctification. Positional sanctification speaks of our new true spiritual position through our union with Christ. It is in this union that we have the righteousness of Christ impugned to us. His righteousness given to us. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We've been made a new creation in the image of His Son. And we find in Hebrews 10.10 a great expression of this truth. By this we have been sanctified. Past tense. We've been sanctified in our salvation. Positional sanctification. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This takes place at salvation where we take on His righteousness, His holiness, and His purity. This is our new spiritual position in Christ. Secondly, there is progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming more like Christ as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and as we willingly yield and submit ourselves to His control. This is the daily disciplined effort to allow the Spirit to set us apart moment by moment, day by day. You know, there's times when we'll get up in the morning and we will hit the ground on our knees and we will pray and we will read And we will make a commitment to live for the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. And at the end of the day, we'll pray, God, how sorry I am that I have failed you so consistently throughout the day. Isn't that right? So our progressive sanctification is this daily effort to be set apart by the Holy Spirit for His plans and His purposes in our life. We read this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, present tense, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So our positional sanctification has been established at the moment we were saved, Our progressive sanctification is the moment-by-moment life lived under the submission to the Lord. And thirdly, we have our our perfective sanctification. Our perfective sanctification takes place at the end of our physical life when we are finally freed from the presence of sin. Positional is past tense. Progressive is present tense. Perfective is future tense. This speaks of our heavenly reality for all eternity 
when you and I will have this incredible ability to behold the unblemished glory of the Lord. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform, future tense, the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Those are the three phases of sanctification. Past tense, present tense, and future tense. So which one do you think Jesus is praying about? He's praying about their progressive sanctification. He's praying about the need they're going to have to live their lives moment by moment, day by day, in a constant position of submission to the Holy Spirit. In John 15.3, Jesus already declared that they are clean, meaning that they were already saved. Jesus is not praying for their imminent departure to see the glory of the Lord as He is about to do. He is praying for them to be sanctified in the truth so that they can carry out this apostolic ministry to be able to withstand the hatred of the world, to be protected from the enemy. And in order to do that, they will need progressive sanctification through the Word. Now, all the disciples knew was the Old Testament revelation of God. But it is through the work of the Holy Spirit that He is going to birth in them and through them the continuing revelation that we have in our New Testament today. And so Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So it not only speaks of the truth that they know in the Old Testament, it speaks of the truth that they are going to come to know as it is revealed to them through their walk with God. So our progress of becoming more like Christ their progress of becoming more like Christ is directly related to how the truth of God's Word is applied to our lives. As a believer studies God's Word, he sees more and more how he is to live. He sees and sets himself apart to live the way God tells them to live. So the Word of God holds new instructions for the believer every day. The Word of God shows us how we are to live, how we are to be more and more conformed to the image of His Christ, not just once positionally at our salvation, not clinging to the future hope of our perfective sanctification when our physical life is over, but in the now, we are to give ourselves to the Word so that we can be conformed to the image of His Son. The crucial point is this, the believer must come to this truth. We must make a decision to come to the truth of God's Word and accept it as His complete and divine revelation. To be willing to fully yield and submit ourselves to whatever it tells us to do, as uncomfortable, as inconvenient, as unwelcomed as it might be, if you and I have a sincere desire to be conformed to the image of His Son, then we must approach His Word with absolute and complete submission each and every day. Jesus is the example 
of this kind of progressive sanctification that you and I are to express in our lives. Now let me hear this very, very clearly, very, very importantly. Jesus didn't need to be made more holy. He was already the the complete embodiment of the holiness of God. But Jesus' example of His perfect submission to and His perfect obedience to the Father is our example. There was never a point where Jesus stumbled. There was never a point in which Jesus rebelled. There was never a point in which Jesus said, I'm not going to do that. He was the perfect example of what the pursuit of obeying truth is to look like in our lives. In verse 18, He says, As you sent Me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So Jesus is the embodiment of the Word of God. He's the living Word of God. And as the Holy One of God, He came into the world to to complete the divine mission of God, and that was the redemption of man. Everything about Jesus' life is centered on the completion of this divine plan of redemption that we're about to experience in the Gospel of John with Jesus on the cross. So just as as the Father sent Jesus into the world to accomplish this divine mission, Jesus is sending these men into the world to complete their divine mission, and that is the Great Commission. To go and to tell, to baptize, and and to disciple into every part of the world. Their ability to complete their divine mission is directly related to their progressive sanctification. You see, that sanctification is being set apart for the purposes of God. The more we are set apart to the Word, the more we are separated from the world and joined to the Word, the more God is going to use us in this world that we live in. Their divine mission was to execute the apostolic ministry and to begin living out the Great Commission. That is our divine mission today, to execute the Great Commission that they began some 2,000 years ago. This example continues as we look at verse 19 where he says, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus set Himself, Jesus set himself apart to righteously obey the Father through the atoning work of the cross. And in the same way, the disciples are to set themselves apart to live out and communicate the saving work of the cross. Is that any different for you and I today? Have we been sent into this world as ambassadors to Christ to do anything other than live out the Great Commission? Well, Jesus prays for their spiritual preservation. He prays that the Father would maintain their faithful commitment to Him, expressed in unity, demonstrated by joy related to the truth of His revelation in the presence of a real battle. And He prays for their progressive sanctification that they would be set apart to the Father for His plans and purposes and they would live out the divine mission in their lives just as He did. 
As we think about what Jesus has prayed for these disciples, I just want to remind you that this is not an exclusive prayer for them. It is a prayer prayed for us by extension. And we'll see some similar things in the next section of this passage that will begin next week. But I want you to think about the way Jesus was set apart in this world to think about how he had protected these disciples and their unity and their joy and the truth that they knew and in the spiritual battle and the physical battle from the religious leaders. Think about all that Jesus had provided for them. This is exactly what he's, what he's praying. The Father will preserve and maintain through the Helper who will come to their side. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we think about the entirety of this prayer, it really does communicate to us the depth of love that you have for us, the depth of your commitment to not only these men, but to those that you call to yourselves. It gives us a glimpse of your heart. And Father, I pray that you would continually speak to us and how we can better apply these things to our lives, how we can be more conformed as we give ourselves to the truth of your word, not allowing any other standard to creep in, that we would not allow anything to water down or distort what we understand to be true. May you find in us the same faithful devotion that you found in these 11 men. May we live out our lives in the same way that they did, willing to serve you with all that we have and all that we are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well,